0: Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. Friends, as you're finding uh, your Bibles, copy your scripture there, your device, because we've got a lot of scriptures to give you this morning as we ask the question, what does the Bible say about that? I do want to point out a couple things. One is our uh, emerging missions wall right out in our mall area across from the gym. Many of you saw that massive world map out there, and that's a work in progress uh, that will it will ultimately have graphics on the geographical locations for each of our missionaries from Crossgate Church, as well as our global partnerships. Many of you know Crossgate Church has a presence through either missions or partnerships uh, on five of seven continents. That's an awesome thing, and so we want to put that in front of our church body, our church family, on a regular basis so that God would give all of us— An increasing heart for the world. So again, uh, stay tuned and and, and be aware as that mission's wall uh, nears completion. Hey, the other thing I would point out is the the significant number of people in the last three months who have united with our church in membership, united with our purpose of making more and better disciples. We've had a number of families link up with us through our Membership Matters uh, experience that we do once a quarter. The next one of those is coming up in May as well as getting connected with a life group. And so as you see these folks who have united with us in membership, let them know how much you appreciate them and encourage them uh, to continue taking those next steps along with us here at Crossgate Church. And just yesterday, I'll just throw this out there. We don't have a graphic for this, but just yesterday, our annual event called Cinderella's Closet ministered to over 30 young ladies and their families uh, providing some needs. They can go to prom and so forth and have a formal event but even more importantly, to minister to them spiritually, pray with them, share the gospel with them. And so for everybody, all the ladies who put a lot of hard work into Cinderella's closet yesterday, I want to tell you how much I appreciate you and your love for these young ladies and for their families. Now today we are continuing our teaching series entitled, What Does the Bible Say About That? And we've hit a lot of different topics, got a lot of good feedback over the last several weeks, and we will continue to drive on with this Uh, Till the end of the series, late March. By the way, mark down March 24th on your calendar. That's when we will do our question and answer session right here on Sunday morning in both services. That's your opportunity to ask me any question you want to ask related to any of these topics. If you've got a zinger, you want to try to stump the pastor, bring it, okay? We will try our best to answer your questions in terms of what the Bible says. Says. Now, today we're going to ask this question What does the Bible say about money? You know, the Bible actually has a lot to say about money, believe it or not, from Genesis to Revelation. It's a very relevant question. You may be surprised to know that Jesus Christ in the Gospels said more about money than he said about heaven and hell combined. Well, why? Why was Jesus talking so much about money? And why, why does the Bible talk about money? money so much? Well, first of all, I would, I would think we would all agree that, that money and wealth is really the lowest common denominator uh, between all of us, right? I mean, not everybody's having an issue with gambling, and not everybody's having an issue with dating and, 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 and sex before marriage and, and all the rest, but I'll tell you, every single person, listen, every single person has their mind on their money and their money on their mind, Right? By the way, that's the second week in a row I've quoted the great American philosopher Snoop Dogg. So we're we're on a roll here. You know, I understand the odds makers at Oaklawn are already placing bets to see if we can do it next week as well. I don't think it's gonna happen. But anyway, all that to say, yes, we all have our mind on our money and our money on our minds. But here's the other reason why the Bible says so much about money is because our use of wealth is one of the greatest indicators of what's going on in our hearts. Now, money in and of itself, there's nothing inherently bad, there's nothing inherently good about money. It's just it's a neutral entity. But the fact is that how we use our money and how we make decisions based on our wealth is a massive indicator of what's going on in our hearts. And, and here's a resource I want you to be aware of, probably the best resource that's ever been written, a comprehensive resource by Randy Alcorn entitled Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It's not a thin book. This is, it's got some meat to it. But if you are interested in knowing more about what the Bible has to say about money and wealth, this is the number one resource that I would recommend to you and to your families. In fact, here's one of the quotes from the book that opens the, opens the book. If we were the Bible's editors, we might be tempted to cut out much of what it says about money and possessions. Anyone can see it devotes a disproportionate amount of space to the subject, right? When it comes to money and possessions, the Bible is sometimes redundant, often extreme, and occasionally shocking. It turns many readers away, making it a hard sell in today's marketplace. It interferes with our lives and commits the unpardonable sin. It makes us feel guilty. And if we want to avoid guilty feelings, it forces us to invent fancy interpretations to get around its plain meanings. Now, trust me when I say this message this morning is not intended to put anybody on a guilt trip, to include myself. But I will tell you this, when we ask the question, what does the Bible say about money, we need to be prepared to hear what the Bible says about Money Now, there's so much that we could talk about, but we're going to drill down this week on four specific things that I believe are highly relevant for where we are today, and we're going to get into those in the message. But by the way, let me say this. During the course of this series, uh, you might say to me, Pastor Phil, gambling is not an issue for me. I, I, that, that message is not for me. Uh, dating and, and, and sex before marriage or outside of marriage, it, that, that, that's not an issue for, for me. Right. Money, it's, I'm good there, Pastor. I mean, I feel, like, I feel like I'm headed in the right direction. Okay, I got that. Any given message in this series may not hit you like an arrow between the eyeballs, but I want you to understand this. Every single person in this room has someone in their life that needs to be discipled along these lines. Isn't that not true? Whether it's a child, a grandchild, a friend, a coworker, whomever, somebody into whose life you can speak a word of truth as you understand what the Bible has to say, so don't tune me out on any given topic just because you feel like, "Oh, I'm good there. I don't need this." because guess what? Life is more than just about you. OK? So just be prepared to take the truth that you're receiving in this series and disciple someone else along these lines. Now let's dive into our message. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Money, the need for perspective. Go ahead and fill that in on your little handout. I hope you grabbed one on the way in. Money the need for perspective. Now, here's something that we all all need to know, that perspectives and what's going on in our minds tends to drive what we do. So what are some of the key perspectives that we see in the Bible? Well, first of all, here's a perspective. God owns everything, and everything we have comes from God. Listen to what the Old Testament says. Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. The silver, this is God speaking, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. John 3, 27, John the Baptist said this, a man can receive nothing, or a woman, or anybody for that matter, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. There's nothing that you have received that you haven't received from God. And then, of course, when we bring that up, people times often say, but I earned it. Sweat on my brow, calluses on my hands. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 8. God's got a verse for everything, doesn't he? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. See, everything we have comes from God, It all belongs to God. This perspective that says, okay, this is God's part of my money, I don't don't see that in the Bible. God owns it all, and it all comes from God. Here's another perspective that's very important to have, and that is this. God is more important than money. That's pretty simple, isn't it? God is more important than money. Let me give you a scripture, because, because we desperately need this in our world today. Jesus said, just turn to your neighbor right now and say, Jesus said, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And and in our our culture today, here's what we have to understand. We cannot depend on God and money, okay? Who are you gonna depend on? Listen to this quote. There's something about having a lot that makes me think i only need god a little and there's something about having a little that leads me to the realization that i need god a lot let's let's read that one more time there's something about having a lot that makes me think i only need god a little and there's something about having a little that leads me to the realization that i need god a lot the, the question is who are we depending on what are we depending on you remember last week the reliance factor what are we relying on? Ultimately, are we relying on God? Or are we finding security and peace in the fact that we have a little financial margin? Okay, I built up, I built up a little nest egg, as we say. I built up a little savings account here, and now I'm, I'm at peace. Now I can rest, right? God says, there's no peace there. There's no rest there. The peace and the rest comes from me. God is more important than money. But here's one other. Here's another one. Very important. Our use of money reveals our hearts. We said this already. Again, what does the Bible say? Check this out. Matthew chapter 6, famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Jesus Christ speaking, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. There is a direct relationship between our treasure and our heart. That's an incredibly important perspective. Here's another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Backstory on this is that Paul the Apostle was traveling around. He was taking up an offering for the Christians back in Jerusalem who were suffering and under persecution and, and, and all of these other things. And these other churches were contributing. And he talks specifically about one church that was seriously engaged in this generous endeavor. Listen to this. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, so these are the people that he's holding up. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They're going through hard times, but man, they really want to participate in this this work of generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. This is the key part of this scripture. These people gave themselves first to the Lord. God was first in their hearts and then by the will of God to us. That's why I say what we do with our money, and not just in terms of our generosity, but everything, indicates what's going on in our hearts. That's a huge, huge perspective that we need to have as God's people. So yes, the importance of perspective, can't say enough about that. But here's another one, Luke chapter 12, listen to this. Again, famous passage from Jesus, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brothers to divide the inheritance with me. So this guy, he's all about, man, I just want my money, I want my money. But Jesus said to to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That, that's, that covetousness, it's materialism that's, that's eating our world alive to this day. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Isn't that good? Your life, the sum total of your life does not consist in all the stuff that you have. In, in all of your possessions, in your bank account, in your bottom line, and all the rest. That's not what life is all about. It's what's going on in, in the heart that really matters. So, The importance of perspective, absolutely critical, but here's another one: the application of wisdom. Okay? Let's apply some principles that we see directly in the scripture. Okay? What what does the Bible say about the the, just the rhythms of our lives? Okay, first of all, here's something you need to understand the Bible says about money. Save it consistently. Save it consistently. Proverbs chapter 6. Look at this. Go to the ant. O sluggard. Sluggard is just a fancy Bible word for lazy person. All right, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. In other words, he says, hey, man, the ant is saving, saving up. And by the way, there's a big difference between saving and hoarding. We're not talking about hoarders here, all right? We're talking about saving, and, and storing a portion of what you take in for the future. There, there's, there's an emphasis on saving it consistently in the Bible. So Forbes magazine, just last week, uh, published the results from 2023. Uh, at the end of 2023, they said that the average American home saves 4.1% of their entire annual income. That, that's average. For, some save more, some save less 4.1 percent uh, and then they started talking about what's called emergency savings you know that's when you have some money set aside so that if 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 heaven forbid you lose your job or there there's a there's a, a loss of income or whatever how long could you go based on your emergency savings uh, before you were really in a desperate situation now most experts tell us that that ideally in a perfect world we would have six, three to six months of savings of our, of our of our income so that we could go on for 3 to 6 months if we lost all of our all of our job and income uh, right there 3 to 6 months that's that's kind of again that's in a perfect world but then they focused on just one month how many americans have enough in savings so that if they lost their jobs they could at least go for one month before they really got desperate here's the numbers 37% of americans say yes we have one month saved 39% say, well, we don't quite have one month, but we have some. And 24% say, we ain't got anything saved. We, we, we have nothing. Uh, the Federal Reserve pointed out that in 2023, uh, roughly 40% of Americans don't have enough saved to be able to cover a $500 uh, emergency bill. You know, boom, the car, the car breaks down, and, and it's going to cost me $500 bucks to get it fixed. According to the Federal Reserve, 40% of Americans don't even have enough saved to cover That. Uh, So there there is this emphasis on saving in the Bible, even if it's just a little bit, just just a little bit, $5, $10, $50, not a massive amount. We're not talking a stockpile of wealth here. We're talking about the consistency of setting aside, of setting aside, of setting aside as much as possible. So that's a principle we see in the Bible save it consistently. Here's another one borrow it carefully. Borrow it carefully. So many of us are familiar with Proverbs 22, 7. Look at this. The borrower is the slave of the lender. Now, that's painting debt and and, and the borrowing of money in very stark terms here. The borrower is the slave of the lender. But isn't that so true? Isn't that so true in our world today? And the, the two types of debt that are eating people alive as much as anything in the United States today is credit card debt, and automobile debt, right? Credit card debt and automobile debt. As of 2023, Americans had one trillion dollars in credit card debt. That's a brand new record. We broke the record, one trillion dollars. You know what the average American family owes on their credit cards? Seven thousand, nine hundred and fifty-one dollars. That's the average. There's some people that have a whole lot more than others there's somebody out there that's got 15 grand because we ain't got any i mean we we don't we don't even go there but the fact is that the average family has seven thousand nine hundred fifty one dollars and guess what the average interest rate on a credit card is today 22.8 percent when i when i see that number i just feel like going like this 22.8 uh, percent uh, uh, it's crazy oh here's the other thing you talk about emergency saving 36% of Americans owe more on their credit cards than they have in emergency savings. Now, I'll tell you, I got my first credit card 30 years ago, and we, we only have one. We use debit cards from the banks, but we, only have, we have one credit card to get some points and so forth. But I got my first credit card 30 years ago, and you may, you may think this is extreme, but I will tell you this, when I see a credit card sitting on the counter, I treat that thing like I would treat a loaded firearm, for real. I mean, yeah, I, I say that, and it's kind of, it's kind of a joke, but listen, I, I've been around weapons all my life practically. I mean, I, I'm not scared of them, but I'll tell you what, I know exactly what a loaded gun will do if it's not handled carefully, right? I, I tell you, I, ha- I have that much uh, concern about a credit card because I don't even want to go down that road that would put me and my family in some type of financial jeopardy. If we, if we can't afford it, we don't have the bank, Uh, the money in the bank for it. We're just, we're going to wait. We're going to wait and put it off. A little delayed gratification never killed anybody. That's credit card debt. What about automobile debt? $1.6 trillion in car debt. People are making payments on $1.6 trillion. You know what the average car note is in the country today? 70 months. 70 months. Used cars a little less. There's some new cars that are going for up to 84 months. That's crazy. The average car payment in the United States right now is $700 a month. That's average. Some people are get this. Okay, just buckle your seat belts because this is going to blow you away. 20% of all car payments right now are over $1,000 a month. That's 20%. Unbelievable. But that, that's where that's where we have gone as a country. This, this 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 easy money I can borrow it, borrow, borrow, borrow. The Bible says the borrower is a slave to the lender. Borrow it carefully. You say, Pastor, what about mortgage uh, debt? What what about the fact that I borrow money to buy a home? You know, that's actually one of the few ways that we can borrow money that we make money. It, it, it buying a home is an investment, right? I mean, you you put your money into it. The, the value of your home increases over time, and you eventually pay that off, right? I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with debt in and of itself, but you got to understand some of the dynamics related to it. Mortgage debt, that's, that's not a bad thing, but again, is it within your means? Is it a reasonable amount? You say, how much house can we afford? Or, oh, man, how much house? Or, Just a little bit more, a little bit more, right? Be, be satisfied. Be content. What, you say, okay, pastor, what? I'm I'm in business, what about commercial debt? Well, again, commercial debt, very similar to mortgage uh, debt on a home. You you take out a loan, and and you grow this business. It's for the the purpose of growth. Commercial debt, again, commercial loans, not bad, within reason. And you pay it off as quick as you can so that you can continue to to pour into your business with commercial loans. Uh, We we have a commercial loan on, on this campus Uh, When when, when we built this campus many years ago, we took out a loan, and we're continuing to pay that off. Right now, we're right at $4 million that we still owe on this campus, which is, you know, I mean, that sounds like a ton of money. It's it's very manageable. Uh, What we do is we have our monthly payments lined up in our budget every year, every month. We make those payments to the bank. Right now, those payments equate over the course of an entire year to just south of $300,000 that we're paying on our building to get our campus paid off. Uh, now, that said, I came as your pastor a little over four years ago. And, and for, the, for those of you who are here, I, I guess I would say for about the 18 months leading up to when I came as your pastor a little over four years ago, there was an exceptionally aggressive uh, initiative, campaign, whatever you wanna call it, to pay down the debt on our campus. Uh, when I came as your pastor, I personally felt like that was probably a little too aggressive. That, that season of, of aggressive debt servicing, it just it, it was a little too aggressive. And so I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a break from that, and we're going to focus and get a laser focus on the Great Commission. That's exactly what we've done over the last four years. We continue to pay our monthly notes. That's not a problem, but in terms of any additional uh, you know, initiatives on that regard. That's not, that's not something that we've really gone into big time over the last few years. Well, as, as I shared with you last December, uh, myself and the elders at our elders panel, we really believe that 2024 is a year, uh, later this year, for us to be more proactive in knocking out some of that additional principle. And we'll talk more about that later this year. We're not going to go anywhere near. The, 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 the excessively aggressive strategies that were being used five or six years ago before I came as your pastor, okay? So we're not going back to that. But the fact is that, we, listen, the sooner we can pay down more of our debt, guess what we're doing? We're freeing up that three hundred grand a year for missions, for ministry, for touching lives, for telling people about Jesus, and just, just phenomenally, exponentially increasing what our church is doing for the Lord, right? So that, that's a good thing. The fact is that, that there's, there's some issues with debt. And, and, and when we see in the Bible that the borrowers are slave to the lender, regardless of what the context is, your family, a business, our church, whatever, we borrow it carefully. All right? But here's one other thing. Just, just so you don't think I'm all about, well, you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, here's something else the Bible says. Enjoy it cheerfully. Enjoy it cheerfully. Look at this from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes five nineteen. God gives wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them. This is a gift from God. Hey, guess what, folks? God gives you these blessings. God gives you material uh, gain and, and, and all the rest. Sure, there are some biblical principles in terms of generosity and saving and wisdom. Folks, God's, God wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to enjoy it. If it's within your means, go have a nice dinner. Go on a getaway to Branson or wherever. Go on a vacation. Enjoy something. Go fishing, whatever you want. Listen, God is not just up in heaven saying, well, let's make life as hard and miserable on these people as we can. That's not the way God is. God says, enjoy what he's given you, right? Amen? That's a good place for an amen. Yes, we should be enjoying it. That's the application of wisdom. Hey, here's the third thing I want to talk to you about. The power of Generosity. The power of generosity. You know what generosity is? It's when you, when you take the things that God has given you that belong to him anyway, and you hold them with an open hand. You hold them with an open hand. And I'm telling you, there is power when we hold our possessions, really God's possessions, with an open hand. Now let's think about the, 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 the pathway and the, the trail of generosity that we see in the Bible. That really begins with returning back to God a portion of what He's given to us that belongs to Him anyway. All right, let's go way back to Genesis. Look at this. Okay, the priority of the tithe. Genesis 14:20. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Melchizedek was a king. Some people say he was a pre-incarnate uh, you know, manifestation of Jesus Christ. But Abraham, of course, it's called Abram in Genesis 14. He gave a tenth of what he had and what he gained to this guy named Melchizedek. By the way, in the margin, write down Hebrews seven fourteen, Hebrews seven fourteen, where it affirms the fact that Abraham did give Melchizedek a tenth. All right, now let's fast forward just a little bit to Genesis 28. Jacob, later on down the line, Jacob said, I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. Sometimes you hear the word tithe, T-I-T-H-E, all it is is a fancy word that means tenth or ten percent. Again, it's a princi- at this point in time, it's a principle in the Bible of, of we're going to give God a tenth of what he's given us. All right. A little further down the line, we have Proverbs chapter 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce, meaning the first part. That, that's a, it comes off the top. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Now understand this. Abraham and Jacob gave a tenth of what God had given them back to the Lord long before Moses ever came along and long before the, the, the Old Testament law became a thing. All right, just keep that in mind. Now here's Malachi chapter 3. God is kind of getting into his people's uh, grill a little bit here because they were, they were shortchanging God. They were really giving him the crumbs and they were spending their money on all kinds of other things. This says, should people cheat God... Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? God says, you have cheated me out of the tithes due to me. You are under curse, for, for the whole nation has been cheating me. Everyone's been giving me the crumbs, says God. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, I will open the windows of heaven for you. And I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. That's what God says. Now, again, here's this principle of this 10% returning back to God. Now, in the Old Testament law, that actually went up to about 25% because there were other things that they were giving and required to give, many of which are replaced through what we call taxes uh, today. You say, okay, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Okay, a couple things to think about in the New Testament. First of all, the New Testament liberates us from all of the legal requirements of the old testament the sacrificial system for example obviously we're no longer under that because jesus died on the cross in blood and agony to pay the ultimate price for our sins there's no more old testament sacrificial system all of the legal aspects of giving back to god all the legal rules about giving back to god in the old testament we're free from those as well all right so this idea there's there, there's a set amount and you must give this and this is exactly what you have to give That's not what we see. However, I want you to listen to this, okay? Pay attention. Most of the time in the New Testament, we are told that believers in Jesus Christ leapfrog the Old Testament and go back to Abraham as the example. That's like the whole story of the book of Galatians. we're We're not legally bound to Moses and the law of Moses, but we leapfrog that back to Abraham, the man of faith. So while all the legal uh, you know, boilerplate of the Old Testament law is, is thrown out the window, we go back to Abraham, the man of faith. Now, what did Abraham do? He gave a tenth back to the Lord. Again, we, as, as New Testament Christians, we don't see that as a legal, hard and fast line, you must do this, this is what you must do, no questions asked, no discussion. That's not the point. But the point is that for us, generosity is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart, right? Now, I would point out that, you think about this, the New Testament always takes it beyond what the Old Testament says. Isn't that true? The Old Testament says, you shall not murder. What did Jesus say? If you have hatred in your heart for someone, it's like you've already murdered them, in a sense. The Old Testament says, you shall not commit adultery. What did Jesus say? If you, if you have lustful feelings in your heart, remember, it's in the heart. It's as if you've already committed adultery, Anyway, so what does the New Testament say? How about this? 2 Corinthians 9. Look at this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, again, it's not this, we're going to hammer people, this is what you have to give, that's all there is to it. That's not the gospel, okay? But... Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and so forth and so on. There is an emphasis on generosity, and certainly the, the first priority is to return back to the Lord. Here's another verse, uh, quoting Jesus in Acts chapter 20, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You say, Pastor Phil, as a Christian, are we bound to give 10% back to God? No, that, that is not a legal requirement. I'll tell you, it's a good place to start, though, and here's why. Because when you give a tenth of what God has given you back to him, that's when you start to feel it. See, here's the bottom line. If if you're whatever you're giving back to God, if you don't even feel it, if if you don't even feel the impacts of you giving that back to God, you're probably shortchanging the Lord. That's just that's a good principle. For me and my family, 10% is not a bad place to start. Because we feel that. Now there's some people, some people are so wealthy they could give away a tenth of their wealth, and I mean it would be like them sneezing right? I mean, they have so much wealth, so they probably need to give more, right? But, 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 but a tenth, take the principle, take what the Bible says, and understand it's a matter of conviction. Now, that's, that's returning back to the Lord. Certainly, there are other ways where generosity comes into the life of a, of a, of a follower of Jesus. Uh, certainly, in terms of any additional opportunities here at our church, whether it's an offering for missions, we took a wonderful offering for the Ricketts uh, uh, in uh, vanuatu late last year uh, we've got an opportunity this afternoon uh, to provide some additional funding for our next gen and student ministries that's a great opportunity there's other opportunities outside of the church uh, charitable organizations uh, christian uh, nonprofit organizations but i will tell you the priority is always to return back to god through the local church now here's the bennies Here's the powerful blessings that generosity provides. First of all, it tangibly reminds us that we are depending on God, not on ourselves. You hold those things with an open hand, you realize I'm not depending on these things. Here's another thing. Generosity is a tangible display of love for other people. It's a tangible display of love for other people. You want to talk about putting your money where your mouth is, man, I love people. I just I love people. Well, if you're willing to take part of what God has given you and give that to somebody else to be a blessing to them, especially in their time of need, that's the indication that you truly have a love for them. And then here's probably one of the most important things about generosity, and it is this. Generosity checks materialism. Generosity checks materialism. Now, if you don't believe materialism is absolutely eating our culture alive, you've been asleep for 50 years. Our culture is so materialistic. They're the hustle machine of getting us to buy the next best thing and the next best thing and then this and I gotta have this and I gotta have that and I gotta have it now. I'll tell you, when you, when you give a portion of what God has given you back to him or to others, that's the number one way to check materialism in your life. Okay, I'm gonna give you one more thing. Very practical, very practical. The blessings of unity All right, the blessings of unity. And now I'm talking about getting on the same page within your family. Getting on the same page financially within your family, I will tell you, will be one of the greatest things you could ever possibly do. How about in your marriage? Just getting on the same page financially with your husband or your wife will will be transformational for your marriage. I'm telling you, it will be. Uh, For example, Genesis chapter 2. Just think about the unity that the Bible casts Uh, Over marriage. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The financial aspect of that union is absolutely there. Amos chapter 3, look at this. Can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? I am praying that God brings financial unity to your marriage uh, today. Think about this, okay? Unity and communication. Think about these numbers. Only 39% of marriages, husbands and wives, talk uh, specifically about their finances together. I mean, not just, not just saying to one another, man, we broke, <laughs> all right? But, but it's like you, you sit down and you, you have an in-depth conversation, right? 39%. But among the marriages that are considered great, 94% of those have those types of conversations, just transparent, hey, this is where we're at financially. This is where we need to go. This is kind of how we're going to get there. Actually, Cher and I have a little uh, appointment sometime this weekend, I guess this afternoon or after Life Group tonight, when we're going to sit down and kind of talk about the state of our finances. We do that, I don't know, maybe once every three months or so just to get a checkup. I would say we got a pretty good sense of unity, uh, and, we, and we communicate about that. Okay, how about this? Unity and organization. Did you know that only 60% of families have a written budget? I mean, like when you have it laid out on paper, this is it. You don't have to have a, you know, a fancy spreadsheet, but you've, you've somehow put your budget in writing and you're doing your best to stick with that. That's 60%. You know what that tells me? 40% of families are just shooting from the hip, from week to week, month to month. It doesn't matter how much money you have, whether you have a lot or just a very little bit, a budget... A written budget goes a long way. You know, we offer on Wednesday nights, the fan, uh, Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. It's a tremendous, tremendous curriculum that, uh, that helps people to just set up the basic financial rhythms of life. If you're interested to know more about that, come to our Next Steps area after the service. We'd love to talk to you about that opportunity. Unity of organization, and then how about this? Unity of implementation, all right? But what does this, Pastor Phil, what does this look like? If, if, if we're going to have this kind of unity in our marriage, what does it look like? Okay, first of all, here's some principles. Um, no separate bank accounts. All right. This idea of, well, she's got her bank account and I got my bank account. You show me a couple that lives like that and I'll show you a couple that's headed for disaster. Okay. If you don't have financial unity in your marriage, you on thin ice. How about this? I'll even take it this far know his or hers possessions, right? Not like, that's my car. You don't get to drive my car. I know couples like that. Man, I mean, it's, it's painful watching them just try to do life together. You, hey, that's mine. Listen, everything in, in our home, me and Sherry, it's, it's, it's joint, yeah, she's got one car that she typically drives, I've got one that I typically drive, but we don't, we don't go down that road of, that's mine, that's hers. Here's something else. I'll take it one step further we don't even file our taxes separately. When we first got married, I had a friend of mine who was a CPA, and he said, you know, you guys could probably make out a little bit better if you filed your taxes separately than if you filed jointly. I said, we're not even going there. Sorry. Even if, we, even if it would pay a little bit better, we're not filing. Now, I'm not saying, you. Have, I mean, I'm just telling you, every, I'm not saying if you file your taxes separately, you're, you're living in sin or whatever, okay? I'm not trying to say that. But what I'm saying is, there's a principle of unity, and every single possible way that you can pursue unity of finances in your marriage, you will be better for it. You will be better for it. And here's one other. Just no more secret spending. You guys ever go out and buy something, you'd be like, oh, man, I hope my wife doesn't know I bought this, right? Or maybe, ladies, you go out and buy something, you're like, I just, I'll kind of hide this in the closet until everything blows over, and then I'll just be like, oh, that thing, yeah, I've had that thing for years, right? right? I'm not saying that Cher does that. I'm just saying, right? Okay. Anyway, (laughs) hey, no secret spending. Just get honest with one another. Get on the same page. You will be blessed because of it. But what about parenting? What about getting on the same page as a family? You know, remember what I said at the beginning of the message? You may may hear a message on any one of these topics in this series and say, I'm good. I'm good. I'm but who in your sphere needs to be discipled on these basic things, right? Mom and dad, you got a responsibility to disciple your children about finances. That's, in many ways, that's probably the one area where we as parents drop the ball more than any other. Yeah, we teach our kids the Bible, and we want them to go to church and establish rhythms of the Christian life. But when it comes to really discipling our children about their finances, poof. What does the Bible say? Deuteronomy 6. Look at this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. What does that mean? That means that the basic principles that we're talking about today, God owns everything. Everything we have comes from God. God is more important than money. And that what we do with our money reveals what's in our hearts. Those are the kind of things that you need to be discipling your children about. Talk about these things. I I would tell you every single thing that I've shared with you this morning over the years have been things that we've talked about at our dining room table with our kids, right? And trust me, Financially, our kids are still a work in progress, just like yours are. But the fact is that there's been some intentionality, and we we, we want to train our children to understand what God says about money. Because what we do with money reveals our hearts. And at the end of the day, I want God to have my heart. I want God to have my heart. This series, equipping us to think biblically, asks the question what does the Bible say? You know the main message of the Bible? God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you know Jesus Christ personally? As with every message in this series, if you're here and you're not saved, you, 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 haven't, you haven't been born again, guess what? This is not gonna make any sense to you. So the first step is to trust Jesus Christ, to say, Jesus, I do believe that, that I'm a sinner, I can't save myself, but Jesus, I believe you died on the cross that my sins could be forgiven. I believe you died and that you rose again on the third day and that you're holding out that free gift of eternal life. And the greatest decision, listen, the greatest decision you could ever make in your entire life would be to trust Jesus Christ and trust him today. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer@crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.